Welcome to the Heal, Cleanse, Love podcast. Life is better when you are aligned with who you really are. When you are you, capital Y-O-U. How do you get more aligned? I've found that doing things that fall into one or more of these categories, healing, cleansing, and loving, as often as you can, will get you closer and closer to the real and most beautiful you. Come and be still for a Quiet your soul for a time Don't say a word, just come listen and me Be still there's no place like real, and this is Heal, Cleanse, Love. The great Martha Beck said, if enough people start mending their true nature in the incredibly interconnected world we're creating, the cumulative effect really could begin healing the true nature of, well, everything. That is why we're here, to mend our true nature and to get connected to it. The openness and honesty of my guest in this episode, Angelo Rose, is a breath of fresh air, just as it was for my first two guests. And it is why I am doing this podcast. This is real life, real people trying to be the best they can be, working hard for themselves and for others, having courage to follow their heart. I mentioned Angelo in the first episode of the Heal Cleanse Love podcast. I talked about how I chose the attorney that I wanted to represent me in my divorce 20 years ago. I became aware at that time in my life that my life was comprised of little moments and I had the power to choose, for some of the moments at least, whether I wanted love-based or fear-based people in them. Angelo and I share some common friends and so after my divorce was settled, I was aware of some of the things he was doing but I wasn't close enough to know much. He and I are the same age, and when I watched him become a singer-songwriter and release his first album at the age of 37, I wanted to know more. Angelo has released six more albums since that first one, the latest he finished mixing the night before we recorded this episode. He talks with me about being an attorney with a big heart and how he decided to be intentional about practicing law in a way that fit who he is, rather than doing it the way most do. He talks about the driving force behind his first album. He shares what it felt like to begin to put his art out there and what it feels like for him now. He talks about a humanitarian trip he took to Haiti in 2017 and his involvement with St. Damien's Pediatric Hospital in Port-au-Prince, Haiti to this day. Angelo's latest album is called Datura. It is now available. All proceeds from his music, including what is earned from streaming, are donated to St. Damien's Children's Hospital. So I hope you will check out his music and add your favorite songs to a playlist. Every time you hear them, you'll know you are helping to make a difference in someone's life. I have felt a kinship with you from the standpoint of, it seems to me, from my perspective, that both of us in our 20s and early 30s were embarking on a path that was who we were and brought success and good things, but lacked a good part, a big part of 
who we were. Is that fair to say? I, I, I certainly think um, in my 20s, in my early 30s, um, I wouldn't classify it as saying I was a different person, but I would say probably an evolving person that really hadn't found where my niche was in terms of my professional world as a lawyer and also as a songwriter. But I didn't do my first album until I was 37. And it was all the things that led up to that point for 37 years that kind of were the impetus for actually doing that and then stepping into a whole different realm. So I think that you're fairly accurate, at least about me. Um, I was really trying to catch my footing if this was going to, if my professional career as a lawyer was going to be something that I wanted to stay with and do and do well, or if I was going to move out and do something else. And so now you do, you do both. I do both. Yeah. So yeah. you stayed in that. I did. Mm-hmm. But there were significant changes there too. Um, when I moved my practice from, you know, Rochester to Victor to, to you know, in 2007 and opened up my own firm here with a friend. It was a kind of an opportunity to reinvent myself the way I wanted to be. And then when my partner uh, became a judge, I had to make a decision. Was I going to stay here where I was just gaining some momentum or go back to safer confines in Rochester? And I chose to stay here um, in Victor and then really re- reshape my practice uh, around my personality, mm. which in my field isn't the easiest thing to do. I think a lot of people do it the other way around. They think they're supposed to be a certain way as a lawyer, and they put themselves in a box. And for years, I had so many friends who were lawyers tell me to do this or be this, do that, do that. And I, maybe I took pieces of them. But finally, I think in 2000, really in 12, which isn't that long ago, I said I'm finally on my own enough to shape my career uh, as a lawyer. And and it's funny, it was at that moment where a good practice became a really, really good practice. Okay. So more success after you or you. Yeah. You know, success, I don't think is in terms of, of, of monetary things, but I mean, I certainly got busier. More success for me. Uh, I, I, I felt much more at home doing things in a way that was different than almost every other lawyer in terms of how I build people or how I meet with people. Um, I just let, uh, I let the, the person that I was, I, I think, kind of lead. And before, maybe I was letting the practice try and lead me. And it was a little bit, um, I would say, difficult at times. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's where I've sensed it then. So me being an MBA in finance, a woman, you know, in like the 90s, early 90s, where it was very much like that, that you you have to wear this and act like this and you know talk like this and so maybe that's what I was really picking up on was we were in the worlds professionally where it was there was a lot of dictating going on on what who we should be and how we should be I think I sensed in you too then as you did start to get into music it seemed that I was seeing in you what it would feel like to me which was how hard it is to do that when you're in a realm where the expectations are that you will act a certain way and be a certain way. I mean, it's a testament to who you are to pick up on all that stuff um, and and to remember it. But um, I think for me, I've always been a, a caring person, like a giving a, a person that wasn't all about um, 
being the show, you know, uh, I much more care about people, but it was very difficult to hone in on that in a field where the care of other people is really at the bottom of the list. And so lawyers tend not to, in my experience, <laughs> uh, t tend not to be so great at caring for others because I, I think generally that they don't care for themselves. There's a lot of wonderful people I know who are lawyers who really struggle in the profession. And I've been, I was appointed to the attorney grievance committee three years ago, four years ago, maybe now. And so I get to see the problems that lawyers have professionally because they have to come through committee. And it's so prevalent. Uh, the same things that happen up with drug abuse or alcohol abuse because they're hurting. Uh, you know, we have to be psychiatrists, psychologists, problem fixers. And I'm not complaining. We make a good living. I understand that part. I, I really understand it. But um, for me, understanding that um, why I, I think that I'm on this planet is to help other people. I always have been that that's been what I've been best at, uh, sometimes to my detriment, sometimes being taken advantage of. Um, but I think as years have come by, I don't look at it like that anymore. I have very open eyes about the people I choose to help and, and do it really without expectation. So it's good. I, I was very fortunate. Is there anything else about uh, what life was like for you before you started playing music? Well... You know, I got to listen to a little bit of one of your prior podcasts, and I, you know, I, I believe that you emphasize what saying yes does. For me, I started writing music when I was in junior high. I mean, I was 12 years old. You know, I was lucky enough where I took guitar lessons and was excelling there. And then piano kind of took on a life of its own where I was self-taught. And, uh, and I went through college and, and law school and then post-law school. And I always wanted to do an album or record um, or do something more professionally. And I consistently found excuses why I shouldn't. And it's a shame because I lost a lot of time in doing that because 37 years old to come out with your first album isn't exactly, you know, uh, the time that you should be doing those things. But in the same way, I wouldn't change a thing because the way I did it was so... Uh, important to me and it was my journey right so um was it yeah. fear that stopped you before unquestionably uh fear was a, a really powerful um motivating or anti-motivating factor can you remember what some of those fears were yeah i think the fear of failure the fear of rejection things that we often take through life that again can shape so much of our relationships our jobs and music and you know when you go up and stand in front of people and you're singing about something that means the world to you um, to have people not respond to that or ignore it or talk over you um, if you're playing a venue those are really scary things for me and, and maybe um, the idea that you know in our 20s and teens and you just think there's always more time you know and what the impetus of me doing it so quickly at 36 or 37 without knowing a thing about recording or anything was a friend of mine being diagnosed with cancer. So, um, you know, I was really just trying to beat his death date and that's all. And so the first album was done so quickly and without me not knowing, you know, I had a Mac, I had no idea how to use Pro Tools and just dove in. And back then there was no YouTube videos teaching you how to do anything. And, and I'm sure the first album demonstrates that rawness, that on so many levels but uh 
that's that's really what it was. But fear was, yeah. I could, there's so many other words I could utilize, but I think that pretty much summarizes it. And you got it out before he died. I did. Um, I managed to get it out about three weeks before he passed. Mm-hmm. So it was right around July 4th of 07. And then he passed around the 28th, 29th. And he was down in D.C. So he did get to hear it, mm-hmm. which was important to me. Yeah. Yeah. How did you know each other? Uh, law school. He got me through law school, no doubt. Um, law school isn't like college. It's not that type of atmosphere. It's pretty cutthroat and driven. And, and he... You know, to this day, his name's Jason Cohen. Jason taught me a lot about um, really being fearless. My When I look back on it, it was almost his philosophy on life, you know. He was a different cat. He he, um, he wasn't everybody's cup of tea, and but he was mine. And he was just a really dear friend, mm-hmm. big heart. Yeah. One of the coolest stories and um, the, the whole reason I started really playing out or started doing music more, I'd say, uh, in a public setting was back when I was doing yoga at Breathe Yoga and, uh, and um, the, the owner there, Cindy Weiss, had asked me to do, uh, to, to she knew I fooled around and played music, but and again, never formally. So one day she asked me to play at the end of a class and Shavasana, the end of a yoga class, and every every part of me, uh, my my stomach fell to the floor. Every part of me wanted to say no, uh, but for some reason I said yes. And and at this point, my buddy was battling cancer, and uh, I just found that out really. And at the time, she'd asked me, and I said, "What am I?" You know, to myself, I just said yes, and then and then the weeks leading up to it, just truly regretted it. <laughs> Because I felt sick to my stomach that I'd have to play this dead quiet yoga class. So it was Christmas Eve morning. And uh, I showed up and I was doing a lot of yoga back then. And uh, I showed up. And what the really crazy part of this story is I had written this song um, and was going to perform it. And I had never performed in public before singing or done anything like that. And in the class that morning was a gentleman and his wife. And the gentleman's name is Steve Gadd. Um, and his wife is Carol. And Steve is, is the most prominent studio drummer in the world. He's the drummer for <laughs> Clapton. And and just name any big, huge rock star from the 70s, 80s. I mean, really, Paul Simon. Did he just play with James Taylor? Yeah, he just played with James Taylor. I was Taylor. there. <laughs> yeah, so you just saw him play. So Steve was in the class that morning. And I had met Steve once very briefly at a yoga thing. But he didn't know I was a musician because I really wasn't. <laughs> and so... <laughs> we're doing the whole yoga class and the whole class I'm like almost throwing up my mouth I'm like I can't believe at the end of this I have to get up in front of Steve Gadd and his wife who I think was a a one time music producer and so I got up and I I, I, you know I managed to do it and I I was so I was so scared Julie I, I my heart was beating so fast and it's funny because at this point I had picked juries for a long time I had picked murder juries you know 100, 200 people in a room without notes, and I'm not nervous doing that. This was 30 people on their backs, and I was literally about ready to have a breakdown, uh, almost hyperventilating, um, which which is so indicative of, of sharing something personal, right? So uh, I, I plow my way through it, 
and I, I probably did horribly. I have no idea. But we finished, and it was really a very monumental moment. And we go downstairs, and everybody was getting um, shakes or stuff because it was Christmas Eve, and they were doing. And Steve came up to me, which is so gracious, and I know he'll never remember it, but it's one of the most gracious things. And he shook my hand. He goes, "Man, he goes, you did a really nice job." And I said, "Wow." I said, "Thanks, Steve." I go, and I just looked. And I said, "Coming from you, that means so much." And he he uh, he said, "Sit down." So we we shared a shake, and we talked. And I was asking, I go. I can't tell you how nervous I was. He goes, didn't show. I go, thanks, but I'm sure it did. And I said, don't you ever get nervous? And then he told me something that I've taken with me and told bandmates and other young musicians who are playing out, you know, because uh, I've, I've been fortunate enough to open for touring acts and played to a thousand people, just me when I was doing solo stuff alone. And, and uh, he said, he goes, honestly, when I play a big stadium like Wembley and there's 200,000 people, he goes, I don't get nervous at all. It feels like I'm just playing to air. But when I'm teaching at Berkeley and I have 35 young students staring at me, waiting on every word, he goes, I still get nervous. Mm. And I mean, I, I'm sure I'm paraphrasing a little bit what he said, but that's really where the story, and it always made me feel better to know, here's the greatest potentially drummer in the world yeah. telling me this story about being nervous. And it really set the tone for me to move on from there and then decide very quickly to go loan. Uh, I, I had no money. I owed more money than I had from law school. So I took a loan out against my, my then house and uh, bought the equipment uh, to record, not knowing how to use any of it. And <laughs> I wrote record uh, recorded Shadows all within six months and mm -hmm. put it out. It was really shortly thereafter. So it was kind of a, a very neat story how that all worked together. But it came from saying yes. And I, and I wanted to tie that into what I what I had heard you say in a um, every part of me wanted to say no when she asked me to play. I mean, every part of me. And then I regretted saying yes for weeks. Thought of ways to get out of it. Thought of like, oh man, what lie could I make up? I mean, I got to get out of this, but I'm not a liar. And I knew that I had to do it for me. And I had to do it if I was going to progress in the way I wanted to do it. So awesome. I did it. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. You and I were only in one yoga class ever together. And you did play in Shavasana, but it must not have been that one because I don't think it was Christmas Eve. Yeah, because this started a whole chain that I played there for two years. <laughs> she didn't play a lot. So I would play a bunch of Shavasana classes. Were and you I nervous easier. always or did it subside? It subsided, but I'd still say that I was pretty nervous. It got better and better. Um, but I think maybe the last couple of times I did it, which is now probably 10 years ago, um, I wasn't really nervous. Yeah. There's a transformation that happens. I think if you... Um, if you get used to your art, just like I got used to picking juries, um, where you no longer are worried about what someone may think of you, or what you're going to do. Yeah. But the, it changes into, I'm going to fuck you guys up with what we're going to do. Yeah. Not, I'm going to fuck up so badly that they're going to go home and talk about me. And if they did, that's okay too, because they'll forget it in four hours. Yeah. I found for me too, where um, I... Where I focus, if it's a whether it's a creative or for me it's expression, it's 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 writing or verbal expression is really kind of where I have these outlets. And what I found is what I ultimately want most is I want to come away from it feeling like I expressed myself clearly and accurately that what came out of my mouth is what I think and feel then I feel good about it it's letting go right it's letting go of the project it's letting go of the perception of what others may think it is and as an artist and this is an art what you're doing right now is an art and writing is an art I, th I think that's the hardest part to learn even though I've done it for a long time and I just wrapping up I think my seventh album mm-hmm just now, I mean, just literally now. 
uh, sent it out last night to be mastered. It's still very difficult to um, to allow whatever happens happen. I don't know anybody, and I know a lot of people that doesn't that don't have struggles, right? That don't have pain. I think that we live in a world that tries now to, to convince us that if you take this pill or do this or, uh, you know, read this book or watch this movie, everything's going to be better. You see, if you, and what was it, The Secret years ago, if you just manifest it, those are great ideas, but nothing, nothing happens without pain and hard work. And I think most of us don't want to dig in and do those things that are hard. And, and part of it is really feeling what we need to feel to move on. Yeah, and I think that the trouble with right now, the trend of it is that it's leaving out the why do you want to do this? Because it, it's like, okay, well, you could have these great things or, you know, but the the why is never about that ultimately for anybody. Those things are all great and everybody can and and should seek those things, but the why has to be in my opinion to do the work is, is to connect with yourself because ultimately everybody's unique. Everyone's got their place in this world and uh, nothing is more fulfilling than being who you really are. And I think nothing is harder than not being who you are. Couldn't agree more. Mm-hmm. I think so much of, for me to arrive at that place was not only the understanding of who I was and doing that work and but the gratitude of having the ability to live in a place where we can make choices that we're doing that. And Absolutely. I, you know, and I think that in, in a way was really expanded by the work in Haiti, which, you know, and, and so, yeah, we, we have a great ability to choose. We do. Here, what we want to do. And, do. and that alone is such a gift. And uh, so often people, I think, fail to recognize how lucky we are where we, where we wake up every day. We can always help other people no matter where we are in life, but I think the real meaningful help comes from the recognition that we do it for ourselves. You know, um, when I was younger, you know, in my 20s, I was coaching Special Olympics. I did that for 15 years, and I was lucky. When I was uh, 30, I was away on a hiking trip out west, and I came home, and I'd won this really prestigious award. And I, I didn't even know that I was going to win it. And I, and I had to give a speech in a couple weeks, and I was sitting at my parents' kitchen table, and, you know, it was great. And I was talking to my mom, and um, it, did, it was so perfect what she said. And I was thinking about how, what I was going to say. And she sat down across from me and she said, don't ever forget why you do it. Mm-hmm. And um, it was kind of like when a mom can slap you in the back of the head of a little bit. Yeah. Like, don't read your press clippings so much that you think you're all that. Because the truth was and remains, no one got more out of 15 years of coaching than I did. Not every, any athlete, and I love them, I'm still in touch with them. I got the most out of that. I really think that that was so perfectly stated to me 
in a, in a nice way by a mother who had led the way of always giving away herself in terms of volunteering for people in need. She just was always doing it. So my sisters and I were constantly exposed to that. And, and, and it must have seeped in somewhere in me because I did it relatively young. And, uh, but that started from yes too. Um, I just told the story last week to a group um, I was speaking with, you know, that I was, I was 24 years old, selfish, right out of law school, working out downtown at Flex Gym. And um, I was, I was in the, on this machine and I was leg pressing a whole bunch of weight. And all of a sudden this face appeared over the top of me, like two inches away. I was on my back and it was, hi. And I said, hey, and I put the weight down <laughs> and he said, I'm Bill. I said, hi, Bill. What can I do? He goes, can you help me? And I didn't say yes. I said, well, what do you need? And then he pointed over to a group of special athletes that were over in the corner. And they were with who I learned later was Tim Baird. And I just decided, I, I, I don't know why I said yes. And I walked over wow. and I said, introduced myself. And I said, what are you guys doing? And then from there on, it just kind of took on a life of its own for the yeah. next 15 years. Yeah. And again, I don't deserve any credit. All I did was say yes and then stuck with it. Because really, the reality is when we're trying to help people... I think we get something out of it. And mm -hmm. to not recognize that, mm -hmm. to play the martyr role, woe is me, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. Man, if you're saying that, then maybe it's not what you should be doing. Mm -hmm. Because life isn't really about just being a martyr. Mm -mm. Um, enjoy it. Mm -hmm. and, and those 15 years really were probably my favorite mm -hmm. of my life, that, that group of individuals. I was so very, very lucky. rejection shapes a lot of who we are as individuals on this planet <laughs> mm -hmm. and when I put something out and whatever my intention for it may or may not be there's still a large part of myself that wants it to be heard and to be liked of course yeah um, so if that doesn't happen and I've certainly had both ends of the spectrum where certain music has been completely ignored I'm like wow I'm surprised by that mm -hmm. and then certain music's really well liked and I'm like well I'm surprised by that but mm -hmm. that's a pleasant surprise um it hurts to be rejected. Mm -hmm. And we all know that feeling. Mm -hmm. And if, if, if we live in fear of that, then we, we become motionless and mm -hmm. we become existing, not living. Mm -hmm. And I just, I never want to be that guy, mm -hmm. especially after I lost such a good friend mm -hmm. at a young age, you know, and uh, he wanted to be living. So I think, what should I be doing to honor myself? Mm -hmm. So since that time, I think I've done my best to honor the life that he couldn't have by living my life, not his, but mine. One of the songs in my second album, Threshold, really kind of took off is a wedding song and people, uh, BER played it a lot, still plays it a lot, which is very cool. I owe them a lot and I owe Joey a lot. But, um, that song was probably the first kind of recognition I was getting outside the walls of friends, family, Rochester, because people from all over the world would email me and they were using it in their weddings. I'm like, how did this person ever? And I had no idea, you know, and it was just really a humbling, cool connection when you catch an email from a stranger 
who said, we chose your song because the words fit our life. And then, you know, one of my best friends used it in, in his wedding and, and I sang it live at their wedding and I was their best man. It's just, so I think that the, that it, that was cool. And then with each album, it seems like there's been a stepping stone of something else that has led to whatever the next thing's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If, if, to be honest. Yeah. And it's not always a great thing. Um, yeah. You know, I recorded an album called Meet Mr. Starlighter, which I thoroughly believe is probably the rest, best writing I've ever done. Maybe the best writing I'll ever do, but I didn't record it the way that I can record now. I don't think I did such a great job. Mm. And it just was a lack of knowledge. It wasn't, and it mm-hmm. just, I should have done maybe more with learning more. And I didn't, but I, I so even that wasn't the greatest stepping stone for me, but it was in the sense that I wanted to make sure I knew what I was doing. And then the last few have, you know, the one that I'm just finishing up and then the one I did in 2019, Glisten, you know, it, they're good albums. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm very proud of what they are and what this next one will be. Mm-hmm. What's the writing process like for you? The writing process for me is really interesting. It's, I never try and write anything. So if something comes to me, it usually comes to me on its own accord and when it wants to come. Along with the lyrics, usually comes a melody. And then I get on my iPhone and be I can't re- read music, so I can't write music. I'll record in what I think was the idea and hopefully come back to it. Mm-hmm. But on my iPhone right now, and this is only from 2014, there's over 1,100 different song ideas. And I think out of that, what, maybe five albums wow, so yeah. there's a whole bunch of stuff yeah you know? so so do, are you now at a point where you recognize quickly this is a song coming through me yeah yeah can i give you a really good example yeah all right so this is a crazy story i think i've ever had about songwriting and it just happened to me this year so it was february of this year and i was in my other room there and usually things happen this probably happens to you too from an artistic perspective. When you're not thinking about it, it tends to flow through you much more honestly. Definitely. So this really pretty melody came through me on the guitar and I started singing it. And these these same lyrics kept coming up that made no sense to me. And, um, and the refrain of the song was, Hey, St. Germain. And I have no idea why or who St. Germain was or what, what in God's name a St. Germain was. I truly know nothing about it, but it kept coming. So in my little iPhone thing, and then I recorded it. And in the notes section, I wrote St. Germain, question mark. I didn't know. <laughs> so about two, three weeks later, this is in mid-March, that song was floating around the whole time. And I sat actually right where we're sitting right now doing this podcast. And I sat with a pen pen and I said, I just want to get these out of me because lyrics were coming here and there. And they, I wanted clarity. And one night I just sat here. And I just let it come. And the whole song came out of me. Mm-hmm. And, and it's this song called St. Germain. And it's on the next album. Well, I finish it writing. And this is March. And like I got to figure out who, who St. Germain was. Because I'm going to probably put it on an album. So I look it up. And it's this very cool story about these two prominent figures of St. Germain. One was the patron saint of Paris who, who helped underprivileged children and the poor and he's really one and there's a whole part of paris never been called saint germain which apparently people gravitate towards then there's this other cat saint germain who was this philosopher who believed he could live forever who believed in all this supernatural stuff but he had a huge following for like a hundred years 
around the Renaissance period, right? Yeah. Yeah. It, crazy. And yeah. I started reading about this guy who thought he could live forever, but he, <laughs> and, but also very, uh, like he had some really brilliant philosophy. So people listened to him. I'm about to close the Google app. I'm like, let me see when this guy lived and died. And I'm like, well, wow, that's weird. He died. I think it was February 28th of what, 16 something or 17. Yeah. I'm like, huh. That was about when I wrote that song. Let me go back on my iPhone and see what day I wrote the song. Wow. And if you look at my iPhone, it's the exact same day that this guy died. Wow. So I was singing about St. Germain, who I had no no conception of, no, didn't watch a TV show. I have no idea who he is. But this lyric kept coming out about him, and I wrote the song on the date of his death. Wow. Which is probably one of the creepiest things I ever felt. Very I mean, good. I had sitting in here as goosebumps up and down my arm. Yeah. Yeah. And if that's not enough, yeah. a couple of days later... I go out to my garage and I have to find something from a car that I got rid of a few years ago. It was a bag of things. You know, you change cars, you throw them back. Yeah. And I knew this one notebook was in a bag. It was actually a songwriting thing. So I reached into this bag of stuff from an old card. And what I pull out, remarkably, is a postcard. And the postcard is of the liquor St. Germain. No way. I, I kid you not. Still in my garage. So I'm like, what is this cat trying to do to me? I mean, is he trying to like, is, was, was it him? You know, was I amused? Was he my muse? It's a crazy thing. And I just finished reading, it's funny, that, that book over there, The War of Art. I don't know if you ever read it. No. But it's this great book about uh, creativity. And it's very short and it's not really a story, but it's about how we as artists may have things show up. And one of the things in the book that was prevalent for this particular author was muses. And he goes, when they come, just let them come. And, it, and I just, it was so bizarre. Awesome. I always say law feeds my belly, music feeds my soul. You know, and without it, I don't, I don't think that I'm doing much. But my music has a different purpose. You know, um, if you, if, if you follow me and you know, and I'm not a big social media person at all, but since 2010, my life has really been turned upside down by my involvement in Haiti. And so all of my music proceeds, as little as they may be, um, it's always done with the idea of, I want to create a bigger platform so I can raise more money for St. Damien's Pediatric Hospital in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. That's really my goal. And because I don't have children of my own, um, I always feel that it gives me a connection to helping children, right? Which is something I always loved to do since I was a kid. So mm -hmm. um, there has to be single people out there that don't have the responsibility yeah. of a Riley of their own that, that want to do this stuff. You know, um, if I can, if I can yeah. run a tangent here, yeah. when I went... I was really lucky in 2017 to go down to Haiti in January of 2017. And it is the most um, body, mind altering experience I've ever had getting off a plane and, and absolutely not feeling safe anymore. And though I prepared myself, I think for every possibility in my mind, it's very different to be there and to really just, there's just chaos. And it's not the people, just the country is full of chaos and poverty. And it's, it's so different. And I felt so out of place and and um, edgy. I really was edgy for the first several hours there. 
and, and maybe even into the next day. And then it was either that night or the following night, we had a dinner at the compound where we stayed. And at this compound were all the doctors from all over the world that came to help children there, which is really remarkable. Again, so fortunate to be involved with this group. And other people who were non-doctors like me were also there. But um, here I was, and I was a perfect stranger. I really only knew one person, uh, Jennifer Reno, who ran the organization. And um, didn't know anybody else. And I was sitting uh, at the dinner table, and I looked to my left, and I looked to my right. And it was filled with people from different countries who was speaking what. But what I felt, maybe for the first time in my life, was a sense of belonging and community was we're all here for the same reason. No one's here because their ego drove them to be here and they want to be famous. They want to be Insta famous. They want to put this on Instagram because no one did that. This isn't the group that does that. This is a group that quietly toils out in the middle of the night for three days doing surgeries on children to save their lives. So I met all my heroes, you know, there. And Rick for Father Rick Frechette, who runs St. Damien and, and now St. Luke's, and th th these people, they do it quietly, but with such grace and power and courage that are, those are the examples of the life that I want to lead. Not anybody I see on Instagram that's telling me how great their life is. They lead by what they do. And it's a difficult balance in this world to do that. Mm -hmm. I don't like to put my people be shocked because I'm fairly outgoing and I'm personable, but I really live at the edge of the woods here because I like to be alone sometimes. And, and, I, and I'm, I'm not that much of an extrovert, especially as I get older. But I also recognize to create a platform to help other people, mm -hmm. I, I'm going to have to keep putting myself out there and getting mm -hmm. rejected. Mm -hmm. and, and the things that really do hurt at night when you go and lay down yeah. that no one sees. Yeah. And, but I'm honest with myself. I don't lie to myself and say, oh, it's just great. No, it hurts. Right. You know, And uh, I, I go through this process. So you're catching me in this really raw moment where I've been editing this album for seven weeks, you know, and I'm exhausted because I do my day job. I come home every night. I was in there sometimes all night editing and re-editing and re-listening. Um, and it's not fun and it's not pleasant. And, I, and there are times where I truly want to quit and I want to burn it all down. But the bigger picture is I really believe that I can do some good, hopefully with some part of my life doing that mm -hmm. and it drives me mm -hmm. and I may be wrong mm -hmm. and I recognize I may be wrong mm -hmm. but I'm going to keep trying mm. you mentioned there was a synchronicity that happened that kind of gave you the you said you were ready to today yeah um <laughs> today and so here I was I finally sent my songs off to be mastered last night and I just was woke up kind of really raw nerve today tired exposed um, yeah, beat down and it was all self-imposed I've had more support from friends and family I have most wonderful friends and family who support me through this I'm so lucky yeah. but this I do to myself and, you know and if you don't if you aren't putting out something that is a piece of you that has never been out there before then that's where the vulnerable feeling comes from right yeah. but that's a good thing well vulnerability is strength to me it's not weakness mm -hmm. right and it's also the most difficult thing to tap into right <laughs> um, I, I so uh, I, I get to my office and I'm going through work emails and I received an email uh, that was forwarded by um, one of the individuals at NPH or Nick, uh, Nuestros Pequeños Hermanos, which is NPH, which is um, the governing body of St. Damien and St. Luke's Hospital in Haiti. And it was it was written by Father Rick Frechette, who's been down there forever. 
And um, he's just an amazing human being. Um, and he had written a piece about what's going on in Haiti because, my God, the world is in such disarray. We just don't hear much of it anymore yeah. Yeah. from the kidnappings and the trafficking and the murders and the lack of any type of safety protocol there at all. But they don't stop. And he was talking about how we have a tendency in this world, and I'm paraphrasing, I only got to read it once. Um, we tend to watch the news and it's so depressing and bad and it's gross. But there's also hope on every side of that there are people really, and they're the quiet ones, that we never ever know about mm -hmm. who show up every day mm -hmm. and do whatever they can to save people. And I'm certainly talking about people there mm -hmm. because I can speak from a firsthand experience of that as little as my experience is there. And I know people in Rochester who are the same way. You know, and what I loved about being there and it's sitting at that dinner table, it was it was void of religion and it was void yeah. of economic status, status or color or or belief. We were there for one purpose. How do we help? Be it some no-name lawyer from Rochester or some world-famous uh, doctor from Germany. Um, everyone was there for the right purpose and it's stripped away. You cannot go there. You cannot go to a third world country if and not be stripped away of your ego if, you, if you're missing the point. Mm -hmm. um, and I was very lucky mm -hmm. that, you know, we all have ego. I'm sorry. We, I think we carry it. And that certainly did a number on me. And things that happened there changed my entire perspective, I think, about how I live. Mm -hmm. and, and hopefully I carry that with me every day. Mm -hmm. I try to. How long were you there in that first Short, three and a half, four days. Mm -hmm. It was all I could really, they could really go in. Mm -hmm. And it's so bad there now. I don't think there's the likelihood that I'll go back or other people affiliated with the program here can even go. It's so dangerous. Did you go a second time? Couldn't. You couldn't? No. There were a couple of openings. A, a, a dear friend I met there, Will A.G., shot a film uh, called The Land of High Mountains. Uh, he shot it there. Um, was it, I was, He asked me to come back when he shot it, which was months later. Uh, I couldn't get there, but if my God, that film is so good. If you ever want to watch something that's not going to make you want to cry your eyes out, but give you the story of Haiti. It's very powerful. It's called okay. Land of High Mountains. What are the people like there in Haiti? You have 11 million people crammed into this tiny space. The other, you know, the other half is the DR, Dominican Republic, which has tourism and has some economic stability, although the poverty is there too. It's just more hidden. In Haiti, you just don't, it's a free fall. So to me, the people are, are lovely. And they're warm, but they're also real. <laughs> um, when you're selling um, water that you got out of a puddle in a plastic bag for three cents, so you hope that you can survive that day, the perspective that you have on life versus my perspective is a little different. Mm -hmm. So yeah. um, their ability to love and survive and persevere is a lesson all of us should take. And I would love to stick, you know, a number of people I know uh, mm -hmm. on a plane there tomorrow mm -hmm. um, to, to just have the understanding of really how very lucky we are. And and I, trust me, I get down, I, I have bad days too, mm -hmm. where I've, I've really down on my life or for that day or hour. But for the most part, I'm very, very grateful. I wake up every day and every day I turn on a shower, turn on my faucet, go to the bathroom, yeah. anything, mm -hmm. eat, go in my cupboard, right. go in my fridge. I know 
there's just a swath of people, not just in Haiti, but mm-hmm. my God, even here in Rochester, the United States, mm-hmm. what's going on? So yeah. I just try and I try and be present and aware of where I am, and yeah, it was a, it was a very very high opening trip. So a lot of times their perspective of what happens there is their life. So it's just like when we have, you know, a lousy uh, winter in Rochester and it's like, oh my God, it's been gray for four weeks. We all want to, we kill for the sun. I'm not, I'm not diminishing at all what they experience. Whereas I think I would be so much more emotional about someone they knew who just got kidnapped. They are much more, this just happened. Yeah. Not matter of fact, but. What are we going to do? Yeah. And it's sad yeah. and it's tragic. Um, it, it's, it's, you know, the one thing that doesn't change though, you know, you can think of what could I do when I went there? There wasn't much I could do. I'm not a doctor. Um, so I would spend a lot of time, we'd be at the hospital and I just go around and hang around the kids. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a cancer ward or there's a kid yeah. who had surgery and you got to know them yeah. and hug them and, yeah. and hold them. And they don't care that I was some goofy white guy. Mm-mm. They didn't care at all. Um, and I didn't care. You know, obviously, I'm not, there's, it's just a beautiful bond. And all of the prejudice seemed to be grown out of as we grow. And it's sad because maybe it's idealistic, Pollyanna-ish, to think of a world without that. If we could all just look at the world through the eyes of children. Yeah. Um, but and, and I get it. I know it's never going to be like that, but I guess... Like I said, we could all learn if we all took a plane ride to a third world country right. and spent just 48 hours there. I don't think we would have as much going on here as we do. You know, I, I've told this story to, to people who I'm, I'm close with and, you know... The most painful thing that we did there was in the morning, um, we were invited to go to Father Rick's Mass. And he holds Mass every morning at like 6 a.m. at the hospital. There's a beautiful little outdoor uh, chapel that they built next to St. Damien. And being raised Catholic, going to McQuaid, you know, I was certainly... But but to be quite honest, having my own step away from really organized religion in the last 15, 20 years. But I'm very open to all that and certainly was... um, Felt lucky to be there. And uh, we arrived. You know, we got bussed over and it was just dawn. Mm-hmm. And it was a beautiful thing. We're kind of walking around waiting for, you know, the service to start. And this is every day that he does this there. And in the middle of this church, which you have to imagine there weren't pews. It was a circular little thing. So the seating was all around the edge of the church. So the middle was wide open and it was small. You know, um, there was a couple cardboard boxes. And in the cardboard boxes, I could see blue things, but I really couldn't make them out. And I didn't walk over to them. And then people filtered and all the doctors came. And again, I knew these were doctors who were not Catholics, not particularly religious based on what I learned the night before. But everyone came. And... I'll try not to get emotional. Um, 
they do this mass. And what I realized quickly, because I understood some of the Latin pieces of it, it's a funeral mass, part of it. And it's honoring those. Uh, so I whispered to my friend Jennifer Reno, who is the finance uh, director for uh, St. Damien and MPH North America. And I said, you know, what's in the things? And she goes, those are the kids that died last night. Mm. And I think the... the the reality of mm-hmm. of recognizing that those might have been kids I was with, or in a room with, or held, or held their hand. So there was seven that day, and then the next morning there was nine. There at the end of mass, um, wow. They sang this beautiful Haitian hymn, and all the doctors went to the middle, and they carried the children out over their heads. Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, to see something like that, and to recognize... If seven kids died at Strong Memorial Hospital tonight, it would be national. It would be international news. Then, if tomorrow night nine kids died, mm-hmm. you know there would be lawsuits. There'd be things. But in Haiti, we're supposed to just accept mm-hmm. that that happens there. And there's something so fundamentally wrong with that yeah. for me right. as a human being to think that we are supposed to accept that children are going to die when this is preventable disease. I'll never accept it to the date my last breath. Yeah, you know, and and to experience that, you know. That changed me in ways I don't even know. And when you talk about guilt, um, I flew home. I got really, really sick on the flight out, like really sick. So I had a 104 temperature. So I couldn't fly home from Fort Lauderdale. Mm. I had to stay there. And I remember taking my first real shower. Like I didn't, you know, yeah. a few days. And I got in the shower and I, I, I didn't realize how much of it had seeped into every part of me. And I collapsed in the shower and I sobbed just sitting on the floor of the shower for I don't know how long I sat mm-hmm. there because I just had to get it out. Yeah. And it was uh, it was like just holding it. So to live there, to be part of that everyday culture of constant turmoil, there's so many lessons in that because they still love their children as hard as we love our children yeah. here. They still have hope. They're still kind. But they're living moment to moment, and I mean moment to moment. We, we go through different work at different times, right? We work on different pieces of ourselves, and we, find, we discover new things that are holding us back. And, um, you know, I think just one of the things for me that's held me back is this somehow wherever it came from that if I shine bright that I am going to it's going to be misunderstood you know what my intentions are you said how much you know you care about people and ultimately you you want to help people do you find it sometimes that people misinterpret what you're doing and what your intentions are Sure. I remember back when I was doing the Special Olympics thing, we were there Tuesday, Thursday nights. You know, I'd work a full day, get there at seven, train until nine. This was six months a year. And um, there were a couple guys in there that I got to know peripherally that hated me and would um, intentionally tell people that I was doing it because I, I wanted to have an image of doing that. And I remember making being younger, making me so mad. Like I wanted to, I really wanted to go crazy. I just didn't understand it, why someone would do that. But 
growth, time, talking to the right people in my life at the time, it just was a clear reflection of what they had going on. And it was a great lesson for me as I grew up in my 20s and 30s to let that go, what people's perceptions are. If someone needs to believe that to make themselves feel better, Mm -hmm. then that's their choice. So have you had to, do you feel like you've played small throughout your 30s and beyond? No. No, I, I I can't say that I felt it. Good. I didn't, but I've never, see, you know, when you're dealing with somebody who's never been married, yeah. don't have kids. So th- those those very intimate relationships that, that demand a lot of each other, right? And communication and, and sacrifice and all. I haven't really had to do that so often. I've mm-hmm. had wonderful long-term relationships. Yeah. But those things, so I've had to answer mostly to me, mm-hmm. which makes a totally different dynamic for people who have other people that, that rely on them. And I... I, I Mm-hmm. maybe somewhat intentionally at the very root of my core have stayed this single or whatever you want to say, not married, because I, I wanted to follow this path to this point. Mm-hmm. Could that change? Sure. Could. Mm-hmm. And I'm always open to that, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but I've had plenty of people say off-color things to me. Certainly when I was younger, I think as I've become older and I've done these things for so long, I think it's hard to say that I'm doing them for any particular reason other than... Right. But, there, but, but in a way... I guess there's truth to everything because I, I I was doing those things for me. All the love that I got, that unconditional love that I received from those mm-hmm. athletes for so long w- was wonderful. And it was certainly filling me up mm-hmm. with a lot of love. So there, there was certainly a selfish, if that's the word, p- per piece of it. And just like what I'm doing now with Haiti, there is a selfish piece of that. And it's not that I... I don't think anybody wants to really put themselves out there if they're doing it for the right reasons to, to be known for it. Mm-hmm. I don't know anybody who does the work in these countries and who does, they don't do it for that reason. They almost do it against, it's the antithesis of who they are, but they do it because they have to. Mm-hmm. Um, because the genuine people, the, the people are doing it for the right reasons that you, that you just know. Do you think it's different for women at all? Oh, yeah. Do you? I think, I think, oh boy. Where do you go down this path? <laughs> I mean, I was really lucky, right? I was raised by this very loving mom and two sisters. So I didn't have any brothers. You know, my dad was there, but my mom was the... And my dad was great in terms of some of the, the rearing, the disciplinary piece. But my mom was really the, the, the child rearing force. So being raised around that, when my sisters both work, work so hard in their different professions and have for such a long time that I have from a, from a front row experience watched... The glass ceiling being broken, reset. Broken, reset. An inch higher. Broken, reset. So for women, I do think it's much harder. And it's and I've seen it in my profession over and over again. And any woman who really practices law, if you get them, they'll talk to you about it. To say that there's equal footing and all the way across in this particular profession, no way. Mm-hmm. Doesn't exist. Is it getting better? Yeah, it's getting better, but it's not fair. Mm-hmm. I think the perception... You know, the perception of when people are, uh, when you have a bunch of uh, guys alone in a room and what they're talking about, and the reality of what's out there, Mm -hmm. those are two very different things. Mm -hmm. And it's not fair. Yeah. You know, and even if, I will say the people I'm close with, my buddies, my guy friends, married, they're wonderfully progressive about where 
women and their daughters and women's place in society should be. Mm -hmm. But there is still an old guard out there yeah. that seems to control a lot of the moving pieces. And it's, it's, it's completely unfair. Yeah. And I do think that as a woman, when you shine bright, it's, it can be very hard, you know? It's just like in a courtroom, and we talk about this a lot. If you run up against a tough female lawyer on a case, and she's tough and good, what's the first thing a male's going to say when she, he leaves the courtroom? She's a bitch. She's such a bitch. But if you run into a guy mm -hmm. who's an asshole who's tough in a courtroom and does a good job, oh, he's great. That's the person I want. That perception goes on all the time, mm -hmm. and it's not right. Right, right, right. It you does, know? yeah. One of the hardest things that I do at the end of an album is to ship out my songs to certain family or friends who I know are going to be brutally honest with me. And I know that it's not going to be pats in the back the whole way. So that way, the feedback I get, and I give them free reign, and it's such a, a wonderful growth lesson for me is to not react to that. Even if I have feelings about it, which of course I do. If someone said, they picked the, maybe my favorite song that I wrote and they're like, oh my God, I heard that. It just didn't, it didn't connect with me at all. What is that? <laughs> of course it's going to hurt me. I mean, you'd be a fool to say no one is that insulated in life, nor should they be, where things are said that don't matter or someone gives you a reaction to something you love that doesn't matter. But if I am honest with myself and allow that feeling to come, then usually it moves through me and what I'm left with is still love for the very same person I sent the song to. Actually, it's all I have. And I have gratitude for them listening and being strong enough to be honest with me. Mm -hmm. It's not like I want someone to shit all over everything I do. Okay, there's a balance here. Right. You know, but I'm, I'm asked to read things for people or listen to music all the time. And I always say, how honest do you want me to be? Are you giving me free reign or do you want me to, to pet you? Because I, I can do both. Yes. But there's only one that's going to help you. Yes. And I'm only an opinion. I could be totally wrong. My opinion may be so off base. Right. But if you want mine, I'll give it to you and I'll do it in the most loving way. But the growth... Mm -hmm. growth Julie only comes from the shitty parts of life I'm sorry I know. the rejection the lonely the breakdowns those are the opportunities to do something they are we don't learn much from winning we learn from losing well this whole journey isn't it supposed to be a learning kind of exercise life yeah. if you're long if you're lucky enough to live a long one yeah do you ever want to be like at the end of the road and be like, you know what? I'm 40. I'm good. I know everything. I think that's the problem. Mm -hmm. You know, absolutism. Um, we we know absolutely. And it happens with politics all the time. I am absolutely. You're wrong. I'm right. Yeah. When you close that those doors off, as, as abhorrent as other ideas may be to us, mm -hmm. I think the idea of listening has value. Absolutism and coming really defining ourselves by much of anything. Because when you define yourself by something, then you're guarding that. You're living your life. Great point. Right? That's such a great point. To guard it and to always be seen by others as that. That's a really, really fine point. I think you guard, you guard right? it. Right? You, you guard it. And then, yeah. so then though, it is a balance. It is an art to live life where you know who you are but you don't really 
strictly define yourself or absolutely define yourself. I think you nailed something with that idea of a guardian. I think that, that you know, like as a guardian of self, when you identify with something so intently, and there's, I don't, I don't have a problem with you identifying with something. I, that's great, identify. Um, but but the, the inability to, to move beyond it, absolutism scares the shit out of me. Yeah. Try and walk through the world without uh, harming as many people as you can. And whatever that means to you, yeah. it means to you. Yeah. Uh, yes. That's right. You know, there are a lot of things I don't agree with, but if it, if, if me changing behavior is going to hurt someone, then I'll change. You know, in the short, I can do anything to, yeah. to not hurt another. It's it's not like me. I feel like I'm giving up massive rights to do that because I've been in places where there are no rights. Right. So when you're exposed to how blessed you are to have rights totally. and to have freedom of choice, maybe you don't feel as though you have to defend. It's like, okay, well, I'll do this or whatever. Well, and it's Get because you you're also not getting your sense of okayness from anybody else thinking that you're good. Right? So that's when you can be that wellspring of I'm going to give you love no matter what you give to me because yeah. you get it from the source. You don't get it from other people saying, Angelo, you're great. You're awesome. I mean, it's, no. people do. I'm sure yeah. I don't mean that. But no. I mean, when you look inside and you look to a higher power or whatever it is and you get your sense of strength and um, you know from there, then yeah, you can... You can give to people a lot. I think, yeah, you're right on the top of it with that. I think it's it's a difficult exercise. It is. To do that uh, consistently. But it's one that, if not striving to be um, better for ourselves, then what are we striving for? What's the point of this whole thing? Right. What's the point of all this? You know, I, I discovered this quote, and I'm sure it was somebody either sent it to me or it was in a meme, but it, it in encapsulate kind of how I try and live my life. And it's super simple. It's Picasso. And it is, and I'm, I'm, I'm hoping I'm not paraphrasing, uh, the meaning of life is to find your gift. The purpose of life is to give it away. Mm. And I just think that is, yeah. talk about for me, and that only, def that's a goal for me every day is to give away, to let go of attachment to I want, I need, I want when I, I have so much more than I could ever, ever ask for in this life. Mm -hmm. And that's inclusive of love, too. Mm -hmm. I'm very, very lucky to mm -hmm. have such uh, good people around me, mm -hmm. from family and friends to colleagues. Um, and that changes things. Mm -hmm. So I want to hopefully mm -hmm. try and give that to people who mm -hmm. need it because mm -hmm. I, I hopefully I can be somewhat of, a, of a, you know, an antenna that can maybe emit that a little bit. Definitely. Definitely. I, I truly believe that's the, the most impact we can have in this life is to shine as bright as we can, you know, not for the accolades, not for any reason, but just to do it. Because I really think it, it affects people, um, you know, strongly. And the understanding too, and I think we've talked about this for the last hour, two hours, how long we've been here. Mm -hmm. There's not one answer that fits everybody. No. And I think that's why you can read all the books or the book, whatever. And it's great to take from those things. Yeah. I, I'm a big believer in that. Mm -hmm. You know? Um, but to make it your, you know, idolatry, to make it a God, to make it the answer in your life. Yeah. doesn't work. That, life doesn't allow it to work yeah. that way. Yeah. There is not one answer. Yeah. 
You know, the only truth we have is our own, and that truth is is defined by the work we do on ourselves, with ourselves. No one can be there. It no sucks. One. No one can it, tell you. Nope, no, it's a sucky one. thing. No. I, you know, in my profession, you know this too. You know, if you've ever been to a counselor or a therapist, and sometimes clients will come see me and they're talking to a counselor or a therapist, and the counselor is giving them a list of 15 things to do and telling them who they are and what they do. And I want to throw something against the wall. Yeah. I'm like, that shouldn't be defined by someone who's listening to you for an hour. You're paying... That should be defined by you. Absolutely. Right? Yes. I mean, the, it has to be. It has to. And, but that's the scary, dark, lonely work of introspection. Yes. And, and pain yes. that we don't, that it's it's very heady. Actually, it shouldn't even be heady. It's very feeling. It's yeah. feeling based. It shouldn't be heady at all. Yeah. It should just be experiencing. Yeah. And, and, not, and not really thinking about it. But we want to think our way through things and why. And it's human nature. I think I do that too. But I try not to, especially when something hurts or makes me angry or sad or happy, is to just be with that and, and be with it as long as it wants to be with me. And then hopefully I'm, I can let it go. I know. <laughs> I know. But yeah, it takes a lot of strength, a lot of courage to do, to, to do what you've done. I mean, when you did, just when we started the conversation, stepping out of the normal sort of lawyer yeah. persona role. You know, I know that's not easy being a caring person. No, it's not a profession that really is akin to that. And it's funny because I meet with clients now and my poor 85 year old dad still can't believe it. Clients will come in in the summer. I may have like what I have on khakis and a golf shirt and flip flops or something like that. And the first thing I'll say to clients, I know I'm not in a suit, but this is who I am. And I'm confident enough in my ability as a lawyer to help you in whatever I'm wearing. And and people usually giggle up and they and I hear from so many clients they love that I'm not in a suit. They yeah. think I, that you're just a normal person. Yeah. And if anything defines me, and you've known me for a long time, is that I'm pretty much a normal person. Yeah. <laughs> and I and I'm, I'm glad, I'm very lucky that I was to tran- able to transition to, to that and hopefully continue to put you know food on the table and, and make a living. I think I told you there's a wonderful Buddhist friend who's a priest in North Carolina, David Sachter, who I was lucky enough to, to work with on myself when I was 30, right? He said something to me a long time ago. He may have been quoting someone else, but it's another thing that I kind of hold on to. Mm-hmm. It's that when we're going through life, so often we just kind of don't see the next move, the next piece. But if you live an honest life, and that necessarily doesn't mean a peaceful life, whatever, but if you live an honest life, you hope you get to the end and you look back and all the dots connect. Mm. As though they should have. And the way I can look at my life now in the last yeah. 20 years, I'm like, wow, that's crazy how that worked out. Yes. This thing, man, I was in the dark here. I had no idea. You know? Yeah. And I equated to climbing a mountain the first time, you know, Carl and Jody dragged me up a mountain. <laughs> and I complained and bitched to Carl the whole way. <laughs> Algonquin, which is, you know, and and I hated every piece of it. I'm in a tree line. I'm like, why are we doing this? This is awful. I'm hot. I'm thirsty. I'm sweating. And then, you know, the trees start getting smaller and you can start seeing. And then you finally hit your first clearing and you can see the valley below you. Mm-hmm. And and I remember breaking out in tears because it all made sense. And I always equate that to life. That I'm in a tree line and sometimes I just can't see where the next move is going to be. Yeah. But I'm going to keep going. Yeah. And I'm going to keep pressing on. And then I hope I hit that clearing soon. Then it's going to make more sense. And then there's going to be another hill. And that that 
that always kind of keeps me chugging along. Yeah, yeah. Because as you go up again and you start losing, then you're like, before you get to the clearing, at least you have the memory of, wait, I That's know, a this great did point. happen. Yeah, and I, I can keep going because you have faith. That's what faith is, right? Faith. Faith in something. Faith in humanity. Faith in yourself. I think we have to have faith in, in, in something. going back to kind of going full circle back to when you asked about my first album and to me listening to that album is very difficult but what's so interesting about that album if you ask the people who are closest to me still their favorite album mm. and I think it was because I was so raw and vulnerable that somehow as human beings there's a connection there that they picked up on and some level of something that was there that I can't hear because I'm so hard on myself as a musician sometimes um, and 15 years later 18 years later they picked up on that stuff. And yeah. I think that's such a cool thing. And I think you'll you'll find that with this. Yeah. That your first podcast, like, oh, wow. You know, a year from now, you're going to look back, wow, that was different. I, I didn't know. And then two years, it's going to be different. And three years, it's going to be different. But that's part of the journey, man. Yeah. That's beautiful. And some of the early ones, and I hope this is one of them, is, is raw and so real. Because that's what we, I think what you want is honesty. It is. And, and to get honesty, you have to give honesty. And that means... You got to show them the warts, man. And, right. and I, I've, I've become pretty good at that in my life. <laughs> <laughs> Here's who I am, and that's okay. And, and, and if I'm not your cup of tea, that's totally cool. What is one, one thing that you find beautiful? in this world <laughs> I know that's a hard question to maybe think of one there's 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 so many broad answers I could give you right I mean there's just these there's these gaping broad answers I can give you um, but I'm trying to really hone in on something more specific mm -hmm. um, because the first thing that came to my mind when you said that was love right mm -hmm. so it's the first thing what I find and that could be any form of love, mm -hmm. um, because I still believe. I still really believe that it's the most powerful force that we know. And um, so, to me, when I when I see love uh, expressed through kindness or honesty or sincerity, that makes me feel alive. And it makes me feel like I am here, um, not not an alien, <laughs> right, or a robot, just or a robot. Yeah, and there's and it's there's, I guess the point of that email I received today when I said it was kind of a, this wonderful reminder, hope, uh, love gives us hope, mm -hmm. fear gives us other things from hate to anything but hope. But love gives us hope, mm -hmm. or hope gives us love. Maybe that's maybe work this kind of circle. Yeah. So I'd say that to me, that's beautiful. And there's a lot of things I see that are beautiful, but that 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 particular that particular thing in quotation marks, I think, wins for me. And 
here is a live performance of a portion of the song Angelo talked about writing called Saint Germain. Tell me everything I am But they can't know The flower bed has been dying And so I heard about your reputation And maybe I got one too I will 